Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention here at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And with me is Andrew. Hey, I'm uh, Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, assistant professor uh, in the Department of Surgery, the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at Medical College of Wisconsin. Great. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to see you. You too. So I just have a couple of quick announcements that I want to make before we dive into this month's um, content, which I'm really excited about with our guest, Barbara Moser. The first thing I just want to address is we, in our last episode, interviewed Dr. Nina Guten, who is a clinical psychologist that specializes in postvention care for survivors of suicide loss. One of the things that we talked about in last month's episode is a new organization that's been formed of um, suicide prevention professionals across the country. I mentioned in the episode last time that the name of that organization is ICAUSE. And actually, just given some feedback from folks who have lived and living experience of both suicide loss and attempt survivors, the name of that organization has been changed to PAUSE, P-A-U-S-E. And so anybody out there that's listening that is involved with suicide prevention or um, is a person with lived experience and wants to be connected with folks that are like-minded individuals that are grappling with issues related to suicide, PAUSE is a really wonderful international organization to become a part of. If you're interested at all, you can certainly send me an email. I'll make sure that my email is part of the publication of this podcast for this month. Um, and I'm happy to get you connected with those folks. I also have an exciting announcement that is something that's occurring on the national level. At the beginning of all of our episodes, we always talk about how the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available for anybody that is dealing with a mental health or suicide crisis. And starting this Saturday, which is July 16th, there will be a new three-digit number that folks can utilize to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 988. So if you or a loved one or somebody that you're interacting with is experiencing a mental health or suicide crisis, all you have to do is dial 988. You will be connected to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I will also note that the 10-digit number for the National Suicide uh, Lifeline is also will continue to be active. So if that number is called, you will be accessing the same National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This three-digit number is just an effort to make things a little bit easier for folks that are dealing with a crisis. And so really happy about this as a resource um, that will connect you to a trained counselor 24-7, 365 for confidential and free counseling. In addition, I just want to mention that the crisis text line is available. Um, by texting the word TALK to 741-741. So if talking on the phone is not your thing, if you'd rather text and you or a loved one is in a suicide crisis, you can always text um, the crisis text line. So this month's episode is one that I'm really excited about. Um, We have a wonderful guest, um, Dr. Barbara Moser, who is with us today to talk about an approach to suicide prevention that is called Alternatives to Suicide. Barbara is a retired physician, and she is very active in the space of suicide prevention. I first met Barbara when I 
became involved with Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee. And I have had the pleasure of working alongside her in the suicide prevention realm for a number of years now. And so I'm very excited that she is with us today for our episode. So welcome, Barbara. Yeah, welcome, Barbara. Thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here with both of you and have just good vibes to send back to both of you and all of the work that you both do. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. We're always willing (laughs) to accept good vibes. So thanks, Barbara. Appreciate that. Um, So I want to just start out, Barbara, by talking a little bit about your background and your story. And as you're comfortable, would you be able to just share a little bit about your connection to the work of suicide prevention? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm a family practice physician by training, but I'm really completely retired now from clinical care. And I worked in college health for the majority of my career and for the last 23 years of it at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Norris Health Center. And I became involved in the Office of Health Promotion and Wellness there and ended up leading that. And we really, at that time, were drawn to work in the arena of mental health, sadly, sadly, because of some shootings that had taken place on several campuses around that time. And so in response to that, a mental health task force had been formed on our campus, and that was the first entree on campus for me into working with people who might be suicidal. And at first, really very active with that group, then expanded our department to include somebody to do particularly uh, mental health and substance use outreach. And we started to do training on campus around suicide and helping students in distress and a lot of policy work. And what, what kind of prompted that was the fact that we, we had a SAMHSA Garrett Lee Smith grant, which I helped to co-direct on campus. So because of that grant work, it really gave me an opportunity to expand my work and interest into the Milwaukee community. And I became involved at that point with Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee and became more and more involved with that, especially after I retired. And I also became familiar with the work of a fairly new organization at the time that came out of uh, an outreach arm of, of Rogers Behavioral Health called WISE. And WISE really was championing ways to reduce stigma around mental health and mental health diagnoses. And I really credit-wise with giving me some skills to be able to talk about my own mental health struggles, which I really had not done in any way at work or publicly before that time. And in particular, there's a program which is now called Up to Me, which really goes through how you can disclose your own struggles with 
mental health, anything related to that. Um, and so slowly, slowly, I started to do that. And I am someone who has really lived with lifelong depression, have had a lot of anxiety, and have have lived with ongoing intermittent thoughts of suicide. And so, you know, it was really interesting because one day I was coming out of a meeting with a colleague from PSGM. And so she asked, she stopped me in the parking lot. She said, well, how did you get involved in this work? And it kind of hit me like a thunderbolt, like, oh my God, I'm doing this partly for myself, right? Uh, this is this is to help others, but mm -hmm. it's also it's also to help me and to learn more about suicide and and how I can help myself during those times of struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing how you can um, you know suppress your thoughts and what bubbles up then into your consciousness. So uh, that that's kind of how I really got connected to the work and then when that happened it it really became you know a passion for me too mm -hmm. right it, it really got to my core my emotion and it, it really brought that out in me yeah um I thank you so much for sharing your story Barbara and kind of what brought you to you know the work that you're doing today and we're going to talk about you know alternatives to suicide and mindful self-compassion in just a minute you know I think it's really interesting that um you know speaking for myself as somebody that works in this space it can be really hard to disclose your story and I was thinking as you were talking that you know issues related to mental health and you know, living with depression, living with anxiety, living with suicidal thoughts, you know, having to sort of learn how to talk about that in a way that reduces stigma, but also that feels safe, I guess. And I wonder, you know, people that are dealing with other health issues, cardiovascular disease, for example, that talk about their story, you know, don't necessarily have to go to trainings to learn how to, to be comfortable talking about this. And so I think initiatives like WISE, which is the Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination, are just so valuable in, as you said, Barbara, destigmatizing these issues and helping those of us that have lived with these issues for most of our lives to be able to talk about them in a way that feels safe. So thank yeah. you for sharing your story. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard. Like I I was, a you know, in part of a group practice and would hear my colleagues say, oh, I don't want to see this patient. They're on like three psych meds and I know this is just going to be a really difficult time. You know, wow. I, I'm not going to be able to, to get through. And, you know, and, and, and just hearing people talk about, oh, that bipolar person, you know, da-da-da-da. And it, I, it just broke my heart. And it's like, how, how could that language possibly encourage us to share our own story, which would be really so enriching to a lot mm -hmm. of people we work with, right? Really, Barbara, really hard. Very hard. And I, I want to share an observation, and I'm curious to what degree this resonates, you know, but it, I'm wondering if throughout kind of the arc of your career, which continues, if it's true that you maybe started in medical practice, you know, treating individuals, and then I heard examples of how you got involved with like 
prevention or ways of intervening at kind of larger like systemic levels. And I wonder, does that feel accurate for you? And how aware of that were you during that kind of evolution? Well, originally not aware at all. I mean, originally I was seeing exactly that individual patients. I had a strong interest in helping patients who were struggling with mental health issues and and did a lot of Actually, I did some, you know, just counseling in my office and, and would prescribe, you know, a fair bit and had a very close, positive relationship with the counseling and psychiatry staff mm-hmm. at the health center and was in a very fortunate position to have such a collaborative model, to yeah, tell you the wonderful. truth. Very unusual, really. And it was it was super for, for patients. Um, and then when I started reaching out to campus... And then into the community, I think I really started to shift my focus, as you said, to a more public health model Mm -hmm. of suicide, suicide rates, looking, you know, at least becoming familiar with those data Mm -hmm. and looking at communities, how mental health showed up, how emotional distress showed up in different communities, uh, marginalized communities, oppressed communities. Mm-hmm. And so um, very much had that thought and and really started to really niggle at me after a while that, wow, we, we really need more upstream mm-hmm. interventions that can really support people much earlier before they get to the point of thinking of ending their life. Mm-hmm. And so got involved with Hope Squad, which is a, a program for schools and promoting that through PSGM and helping to do some training through that. So um, very, I very much had that in my mind. Now, interestingly, Andrew, I've sort of made an arc. And while I still have that mm-hmm. on my radar, I've gotten to a point where now I'm really into more connecting with individuals again mm-hmm. in my work. And, but hopefully with some of this more upstream type of um, thinking. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah. and it sounds like with different, a different focus and a different yeah. kind of way of intervening. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So something I like to ask um, folks that we have on our podcast um, that I want to ask you, Barbara, what is something that you wish everyone knew about suicide? Hmm. So this, this answer has come to me in, in really recent years, Sarah. And I really wish people would know that one of the best ways to truly find out why a person is having suicidal thoughts is to slow way down. Something that's a hard thing to do these days, right? Mm -hmm. To slow down and really sit with them and be able to sit with them and their pain in a compassionate way and to be able to do that, you really need to be able to support yourself mm-hmm. in that situation too, to be able to continue to do that work. Mm-hmm. But to really sit with them in their sorrow and their suffering and to hear their unique story. Mm-hmm. And part of 
where this thought comes from is the teachings of Stacy Friedenthal, who I have to say probably has taught me more, at least, especially from a clinical point of view, but, but also just from a human point of view of how to approach persons considering suicide. And she had this question that she shared in one of her trainings, you know, can you tell me the story of how you got to this point of wanting to end your life? Mm -hmm. And this, among other things, really started to kind of shift my way of thinking about how, how do we help people who, who are suicidal? Because honestly, you know, in my, in my former physician role, what was emphasized always to me were assessment, 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 mm -hmm. and which assessment is the best assessment, and which mm -hmm. assessment really right. is going to help us predict which people are going to go on to attempt. Right. And it's really been shown that a lot of this doesn't really work all that well. I mean, we can't control what other people do, and we really can't predict human behavior. Now, I'm not saying that it's not worth knowing risk mm -hmm. factors, warning signs. I, I think it's very worthwhile to know those things because it points you in a direction that gets you curious. Hmm, I wonder, you know, but it's not, it's not the end of things, you know, mm -hmm. and so I'll tell you, if someone had asked me, and I had several therapists and psychiatrists along the way when I wasn't disclosing, had asked me, are, are you thinking of suicide? I wouldn't have said yes. Yep. You know, and for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think people, first of all, the topic of suicide scares clinicians. It scares clients. Right. You're scared because you're having that thought in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we've got all these revved up nervous systems, right, that are, are not connecting yeah. at all and are in in almost panic mode, like yeah. oh, quick pass the hot potato, you know? And I often felt that that's how people who are thinking of suicide were handled, mm. you know, like, oh, don't let it land here, you know? Mm -hmm. And we are, we are often scared. And, and part of that is not having training, but part of it is that there's this rush put on it. Like you have to get this information. You have to know, you know, what was their last attempt? What, you know, do they have a plan? Do they have means? Da, 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 da. And a lot of the time, there's no rush. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can really slow it down and get this story. And that gets to the heart, really, of why that. a person is thinking of suicide. And so that's when we build trust. That's when people can feel your compassion. They can feel your care. If you can then... Oh, I need to take a deep breath here because this is hard. Then they get a bit of your regulated nervous system and they can kind of, you know, and it just sort of builds on itself and you kind mm -hmm. of can get a bit of an upward spiral going. Yeah. I love that, Barbara. I just feel like there's so much wisdom condensed in that. And it's, um, you know, as you're describing the you know, assessment and we need to check this and this and this off and have all that information. It just, the feeling of that is so, it's just the opposite of that slowing down and being present and having that human connection, uh, which is maybe the most important. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Thank you for that, Barbara. I had chills while you were talking. And I think having been in a situation where I've been supporting somebody that, you know, is having thoughts of suicide, you're right. You you do feel panicked. I think, and part of that comes from a place of caring, you know, caring for the person, not wanting them to harm themselves, wanting them to be safe, but really caring is slowing down and listening. And I, I just, I love the way that you discuss that. And I just, yeah, appreciate your wisdom there. So thank you. Absolutely. I want to transition to talk a little bit about um, alternatives to suicide, which is a program framework that I learned about fairly recently through discussions with PAUSE and Prevent Suicide Wisconsin and other discussions I've had with colleagues. And I'm really glad that you're here to talk about this today, Barbara, because I know that you do quite a bit of work with the alternatives to suicide framework. And as we've discussed today, we've discussed in previous episodes, much of what we discuss and kind of think about in the field of suicide prevention is clinical. We think about therapy and medication or a combination of those. And alternatives to suicide is a non-clinical approach to suicide prevention. So Barbara, I'm wondering if you can explain to our listeners what alternatives to suicide is and then who this um, type of framework is for. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I've been involved with alternatives to suicide for the last couple of years, and I've known about it maybe for three-ish years now. And it comes out of the Western Massachusetts recovery learning community, which really started alternatives to suicide-like groups back in 2008, basically kind of listening sessions, and trains people in this approach. There's now groups in many states, partly due to COVID and the transition to online training, actually. There actually was, Wisconsin was one of the first states other than Massachusetts to have an alternative to suicide oh, cool. group in, yeah. Yeah, in the Appleton area in Fox, Fox Valley. So, and I think they still run that group. So, so that's kind of that's kind of cool. We had some precedent here already, but it's in other countries too, Canada, Australia, I'm sure others as well. And by the way, the Western Mass Recovery and Learning Center is now known as the Wildflower Alliance. So it's got a different name as of the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. So you're right. I mean, it's alternatives to suicide is a kind of a non-clinical, non-medicalized uh, peer support group where people can really share openly about their suicidal thoughts and experiences. And facilitators themselves, so for instance, like me, we have our own personal experience of suicide, suicidal ideation in particular, or attempts. And when we run the group, we run it with co-facilitators, so two facilitators, and at least one of those facilitators the expectation is that at least one of the co-facilitators has been trained in Wildflower Alliances. It's a 24-hour training. It's actually a very rigorous training on how to run these groups. And so I got trained with another person in fall of 2020. And then we were both, we kind of connected. We didn't know each other. And this other person lives uh, in the Madison area. And so we were both pretty gung-ho and 
were like, oh, let's get this going. And so MHA said they would host the meeting as the organization. And so we started running the groups in February of 2021. So the groups are really focused on community, building meaningful connection by sharing stories, by sharing experiences. And, you know, talking about suicide is one of the myriads of alternatives that exist to attempting suicide. And so you can certainly, you know, read more about it. And I can certainly share the website where this information is available online. Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd just give you kind of a a brief little overview of some of the founding principles Mm -hmm. of alternatives to suicide, if that's okay. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. So some of the guiding principles and values, um, one is that, We have responsibility to, but not for or over. So as a community, we're responsible to be honest, transparent, present, care about one another, but we can't be responsible for another person's choices or actions. Ultimately, we don't have that control and we don't want to use any sort of coercion to gain that control over another person. So we absolutely never condone forced hospitalization, wellness checks. And uh, in fact, as I've worked more and more with group participants, I'm, I don't know, horrified seems to be the only word that comes to mind at some of the trauma that people have suffered really while they're interacting with some parts of a mental health system, you know, very, can be very traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're very aware of that. And we name that Mm -hmm. to people that write it at the beginning of every group that, you know, this is a group where you can feel secure that whatever you say, we're not going to call. 911. We're not going to call a family member. We're not going to, go around your back while you're talking to us and ask for a wellness check because mm-hmm. we we know the stories of of how traumatic some of these visits can be and so you know it it's more about how do we help a person have a meaningful life rather than how do we keep them alive so right. it's it's got sort of a shift in the focus and Mm -hmm. it's all about consent and choice and Mm self-determination very very aware of injustice and oppression that occurs especially for some populations and we talk about it we acknowledge that Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really about healing and community and inclusion and belonging. Mm-hmm. And so this this really does really, you know, speak speak to my heart. So it's really kind of a unique group. I mean, I have to say that when I went through the training, we were invited to participate in some mock groups as a participant. Mm-hmm. And it was really the first time I ever shared any details of how and when 
and why I had become suicidal. Wow. And in every other setting, I'd always felt very shut down, either by getting to tell a loved one about it and being shut down or because of shame, because of my own shame, mm -hmm. you know, that self-stigma, or because I was definitely afraid of being hospitalized. <laughs> I absolutely didn't right. want to be hospitalized. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it was a first for me and, and I was crying and others were crying and I mean, it was a very emotional because I think it was true for many of us who were training mm -hmm. in this in this facilitator training mm -hmm. that we we just hadn't ever had that opportunity and it was it was very powerful and it was very healing because I really felt like supported and not alone because you know anytime you're in shame and there's so much shame that comes with suicide on so many levels, whether you're a survivor of an attempt or you're a, survive, you're a survivor of the loss of a loved one. And I, I have not lost somebody in my inner circle of folks, but I've co-facilitated those groups at one point in time. And mm -hmm. it's really huge. And that just shuts people down. And what you need mm -hmm. to counterbalance that really is love. Yeah. Um, what what do you think I'm curious what and maybe this question reflects my ignorance honestly Barbara but I'm curious what do you see as kind of the mechanism of change like what what happens when you open those doors and create that space you open the possibility of feeling heard mm -hmm. and seen I I love Dan Siegel's term for this which is like feeling felt you know, that you feel felt somebody really gets me and they're not judging me or shaming me for why I feel this way. It, it makes sense to them. That's huge, you know, and, and you build trust that way so that you can talk about it. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times during these meetings, we're not talking explicitly about suicide. Mm -hmm. We're talking about lots of other life issues, right? That you could call them, you know, risk factors or whatever, but you know, they're life issues. These are living, breathing people, right? And these are their life issues. And we're talking about them openly in a supportive way. And so um, there, there's like a, a, a model for doing this that, that, we are taught when we become co-facilitators and it's called VCVC. And what that stands for is validation, curiosity, vulnerability on the part of the co-facilitators and community. And so, I mean, it's not like you have to check the box and do every part, but, but those are sort of some of the guiding ideas behind some of the things we say in the group. And mm -hmm. I think what happens is the co-facilitators kind of model that initially, and then the group kind of picks it up. And so you're being kind of held mm. in this group. And that really opens the door for, for maybe not, it's not an instant healing, but it's mm -hmm. understanding mm -hmm. and it's seeing the possibility of a way to move forward. Yeah. 
other than suicide. Yeah. My therapist has used the word contain before. You know, when you say held, it just sounds like there's a space to enter into these deep places within us um, in a way that feels supportive and like there's this like you said really felt presence of others yes yeah and i think that's you know such a a key kind of component of that peer support is knowing that you're among people that you have shared experience and what you said before barbara that you know it's really all about love and that peer support is i think rooted in that love um and i this strikes me all the time as I'm doing the research that I do and reading the things that I read, that it really comes down to love. And if we can do that, if we can be loving and caring and vulnerable and compassionate with people, you know, I think that's the power of peer support in a lot of ways. I think this is a wonderful framework and a wonderful model. Yeah, I I really agree with you. Sarah and Andrew. And I think, you know, the the thing with this group is that really only people who have that experience of suicidal thoughts and attempts are really invited into the group. So it's really only for us. And I think that makes a big difference. And what what I love about being a a facilitator, a co-facilitator in this group is that we're really expected to participate as a participant Mm -hmm. and be very transparent about our own history. So you have to be really willing to share, you Mm -hmm. know, and willing to take help from others, which is not always so easy. Right. It's a very non-hierarchical structure. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've, become more and more aware of as I've gotten older and how much I really don't like hierarchy and how I like it when there's sort of a flatter power structure. And we talk about that in the opening of the group that, hey, you know, you want to reply to each other? Whoo, great. I'm going to sit back and and let that happen. Now, what I won't let happen is I won't allow somebody to judge somebody else or be in any way stigmatizing or or mm-hmm. oppressive or anything like mm-hmm. that you know that i see as my role to step in right which hopefully i can do in as lovingly a way as i can but otherwise the group kind of runs itself to a certain mm-hmm. extent and anybody can reply to anybody and you know, we try to share housekeeping in terms of keeping track of time and things like that. And so um, I really like that part. Yeah. So there's a myth out there um, that I've heard a lot um, that, you know, talking about suicide makes a person more likely to die by suicide. And that there's kind of this idea that don't talk about it, it won't be thought about. But, you know, what you've described with alternatives to suicide is it's really providing a space for folks to be able to talk about their journeys with their thoughts, their behaviors, their living experience. 
And I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious if you could talk about your understanding of why being able to express your suicidal thoughts in a safe space is actually helpful versus harmful for folks that are experiencing those thoughts. Yeah. Well, first of all, and this is sort of a tenet of every gatekeeper training you ever get taught how to train in, is that asking somebody, are you thinking of suicide, does not put the thought in their head. There have been umpteen studies that have shown that, if anything, it decreases suicide risk when you ask about it. And the fact of the matter is, it's quite human to think about whether you want to call it suicide, ending your life, exiting the planet, whatever it might be, you know, it's a pretty classic existential human thought. Absolutely. And so, so it's very common to think about it. I've actually said during trainings that if I gave everybody in the room truth serum here, I bet 90% of you would admit that you have had a thought about right. ending your life at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just common. It's just that we get shamed out of it, right? Right. And so when people can speak freely with others who understand in a supportive setting without fear of unwanted consequences, it gives them this this space, this this time to really feel their feelings, maybe understand their own story a little bit of how they got to where they are and some of the factors that are bringing up this feeling suicidal, air quotes around feeling suicidal, because it means something different to to practically everybody. And I think the other really healing part of this is that you realize that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anytime we're in really feeling in danger, unsafe, which, you know, if you're thinking actively about suicide, you're in that spot, you know, you're activating your defensive system, you're in fight, flight, whatever that is. And this can be a very isolating experience. You really start to shrink and your world shrinks and you really feel like you're alone with it. And so when you know you're not alone, that's very helpful. And also we talk about what our coping strategies are. We share those around. And so people get ideas from each other of what they might do, things they haven't thought of, resources they might use to support themselves during that time of of distress. One other thing I'll say about that is that, you know, people who are thinking of suicide are in a tremendous amount of pain. I know you both know this, but I think it's so important to keep remembering this how much pain really there is there. And as humans, you know, we're we're kind of wired to connect with other humans, especially when they're suffering. And the other fact is that really a lot of our pain was created in relationship. And so when you have pain that's created in relationship, originates in relationship, one of the best ways to heal that pain is in relationship, in a caring, loving relationship. And so I think the group also helps to provide that and helps, again, to kind of settle our nervous system, Mm -hmm. you know, so that we get some comfort and relief just by being there. I always feel better after the group, Mm. unless I'm really worrying about somebody, which does happen from time to time. So that's an interesting 
part of it. Yeah, I actually was wondering about that, Barbara, if there are times that it's hard to stick to the tenants. The hardest you're part. you're worried about someone. Yes, that's the hardest part of the group for me. And when I do this group, I, I never say I'm a physician. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes if I send out a reminder email, my signature has that on there. But I, it's, it's something I absolutely don't emphasize. And I read the laws for Wisconsin. I've poured over them. And I've decided that this is a non-clinical, not mm-hmm. in any way sort of a, a, a client-provider relationship. It's right. not. And we say that. And I have decided that I will honor that because of all of the stories of trauma that I have heard. Now, what I will do, and I have done, is I will give somebody my phone number. I will give somebody my email. Mm -hmm. And other, it's not just me, our our co-facilitator group will do that. I have made arrangements to check back in with somebody see how they're doing, offer resources. Are you getting connected? Because we know these, these real crises times mm-hmm. pass. Yeah. And so you want to see what you can do. I mean, also just trying to connect somebody, you know, can I connect you before we part ways at the end of this meeting? Can I connect you with somebody to support how, what are you planning to do the rest of tonight? You know, getting an idea of what, what their plan is for tonight. Well, okay, I'm going to do this. A lot of times people feel a little better by the end, you know. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, it does make you afraid. And, and what's great about the training and the, and the group is that as a facilitator, you're encouraged. That's part of that VCVC vulnerability. Hey, you know, what you've said tonight is I'm, I'm really feeling kind of worried about you mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a little scared for you. And I'm wondering if we can make a plan to talk in a couple of hours mm-hmm. or talk tomorrow morning. And that's how we do it. And it. it's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, it's hard, especially because I've had that role right. in my previous career. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like just leaning on the connectedness and just focusing on opening doors. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. We are nearing the end of our hour. I feel like I could talk to you, Barbara, about this for hours and hours. And every time I talk to you, I feel like I'm being wrapped up in a big hug. <laughs> Honestly, Aww. like that's what it feels like talking to you. But I want to just briefly touch on um, something that you talked about earlier as it relates to caring for yourself and that's mindful self-compassion. You are involved as a mindful self-compassion trainer. I have experienced you facilitating mindful self-compassion with survivors of suicide loss and it was really a beautiful experience. Could you just briefly explain what mindful self-compassion is and kind of how it ties in with the work that you do as it relates to alternatives to suicide and other suicide prevention related work that you do. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Yeah. So mindful self-compassion is actually a program that was created in 2010 by Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. The program has been shown in research to 
increase self-compassion and mindfulness, which is good because that's what it teaches, and also states of well-being and decrease negative emotional states. And so the great thing about increasing your skill of mindfulness and self-compassion is that it's there are two skills that you can take with you no matter where you are. They can be deployed very quickly in a short amount of time. You don't need anybody else. And they're totally independent about what's going on out there. And so they really give us strength and help us to stay in balance when things are tough, help to take us out of judgment, judging ourselves, judging others. And so you don't need anything special to um, to do it. And so I will tell you that there are a few things I've had in my life that are have been a calling to me. And when I first was introduced to mindful self-compassion as a entity back in 2016, it was a calling. It was like, oh my God, I need this. People have told me, you got to be a little nicer to yourself. You got to take it easy on yourself. You know, um, you know, you're not, you're kind to others. Be kinder to yourself. You know, you're always beating yourself mm-hmm. up. And no one ever modeled this for me growing up. No one ever gave me steps on how to improve that. They just said to do it. And here I found, I saw Kristen Neff and she's saying, hey, there are ways you can do this and it works. And it was like, I I have got to do this. And honestly, it's been like a, a, a salve for my soul, mindful self-compassion that mm-hmm. I can be kinder to myself. And is this, you know, perfect? No, but it's helped me a lot. And it's frankly helped me in times of my own distress and mm-hmm. my own depression uh, come back. And so from the get-go, I knew in my heart that mindful self-compassion was one of those upstream modalities that could Absolutely. really help people struggling with uh, emotional distress, including suicide. And in fact, now, over in the last few years, there have been a couple of research studies that do show that in a, a veteran population and some college populations that participants with higher levels of self-compassion had lower levels of suicide uh, ideation and risk. So right. it, it has really uh, come to bear. One of the places I teach is a mental health center. So I, I, I've taught now for people with end-of-life issues who are living with ALS. I've, I've mm-hmm. taught for people with trauma. And, and it, it's just kind of amazing how introducing a very carefully crafted stepwise approach in these programs to increasing your self-kindness and then bringing self-compassion to difficult emotions, difficult relationships can make such a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I've just seen it work mm-hmm. and, and for me too. And, and mm-hmm. so I, I'm pretty passionate mm-hmm. about, about it. And mm-hmm. I love teaching it. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite things in life. Sounds so powerful. Yeah. 
So if any of our listeners are interested in getting involved or learning a little bit more about either mindful self-compassion or alternatives to suicide, Barbara, where would you suggest that they look? So if they're interested, for instance, in joining our group, the link is listed on the MHA Wisconsin website. So they can go to mhawisconsin.org backslash ALT2SU, A-L-T, the number two, S-U. Great. And that is a Zoom link. You don't have to register. You don't have to sign up. We don't take any information. We don't keep notes. You just show up. Awesome. So that works. Um, there also, I just want to say that we, our group meets twice a month, which for some people may not be enough. Now, Iris Place in Fox Valley, I'm not sure if they're online or in person. The last I heard they were in person. But the Wildflower Alliance itself has a number of online groups on various days of the week. And so if somebody needed more support, they could go to the wildflowerallianceorg website Mm -hmm. and look too. And they also have the training listed. So if somebody wanted to become a co-facilitator, that's where they'd go for that. Um, Mindful self-compassion. that really the center for mindful self-compassion is probably the best place to get started. There's a great workbook. Uh, It's called the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook by (laughs) Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. Um, You know, it's under 20 bucks. You can get it on Amazon. I I think it's so well done. I, when I teach, I give everybody in my class a workbook to do along with. So I get nothing from it, but I just, I mean, you know, I'm just saying I don't get a kickback, but I just think it's a great workbook. I think it's a great workbook. Right. Um, so that's, that's another place they can go. Or you can email me, okay. you know, Barbara at CompassionMKE.com. Thank you. Well, we have reached um, the end of the hour. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us this month and for talking to us. And yeah, this was wonderful. Yeah, sharing your wisdom and your experience and your own story. Um, We really appreciate you and all of the work that you do and you're just a treasure. So thank you. It's been a blessing to be here with both of you today. Really, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, Just as a reminder for listeners, if you are interested in any of the links that we talked about in today's episode, we will make sure that those are linked wherever you are hearing this podcast. Um, We also will be posting more information about these resources on our website, which is mcw.edu slash CIC. Next month, we will be having an episode talking about race and suicide prevention and talking about suicide in uh, marginalized communities and and specifically the Black community here in Milwaukee. So make sure to stay tuned for that. And just as a reminder, if you or a loved one is in a mental health or suicide crisis, you can dial 988. Otherwise, you can text the crisis text line by texting the word TALK to 741-741. Thanks again, Barbara, and we'll see everybody next month.